G'day, I'm Jelly, a.k.a. Daniel Farrelly. I'm Alice Zhao. And I'm Curtis Herbert. And this is Independence, a show that is two years old. And uh, it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting to be two. And on today's show, <laughs> we're going to answer questions that listeners have sent in. This is becoming a bit of a thing. We did this last year and we're going to do it again. This is our annual Ask Us Anything episode. You, you you guys excited to answer questions? Super excited. <laughs> Curtis has the most excitement of everybody. I think it's because all the questions are directed towards him. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wants to know what your secret sauce is. Uh, <laughs> it's ketchup. It's just ketchup, people. A <laughs> little bit of mayo mixed in there. And a liberal seasoning with, with salt. Yes. A little bit, little bit of that peanut butter, too. That jiffy peanut butter. Oh, my. Happy birthday to us. Deep breath. Just gonna, just gonna power on through. And in year three, Jelly killed Curtis. <laughs> it's possible. So maybe we should get uh, get right into the questions because we've got a few of them. So our first question for today, in no particular order, in no particular order, they're just sort of random. That's sort of like humany random, where it's not really random. It's sort of more sort of pleasingly random. <laughs> Our first question comes from Heidi Helen Pleopas, who has been a guest on our show before. And her question is, what did you want to be when you were growing up? Would childhood you be surprised by what you're doing now? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. What are we going with for childhood here? What age range? I don't know. What age is the children? Zero to 12? I think after that, after that, you become a teenager. So therefore, it's not okay, childhood. Okay, so we're cutting so off at 12. Okay. Let's cut okay. off at 12. I wanted to be an author, and then I realized I couldn't write. <laughs> or I try to write stories, and then I'm like, I got nothing. And then I thought I wanted to be a marine biologist, and then I realized I was scared of swimming with other fishes. <laughs> Literally swimming with the fishes. <laughs> and so I thought, perhaps that's not a good career path. <laughs> so with childhood, you have been surprised by the fact that you are a product manager uh yeah because i don't think <laughs> i had no true aspirations like childhood you would have been like what's a product yeah, manager <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very adult uh, this isn't fun yeah i think i was just really clueless for a really long time so i think childhood me would be shocked that i found anything that i was passionate about <laughs> yeah so my mom always swears i wanted to be a train conductor when i was very young this sounds about right i definitely liked trains when i was a kid uh, but I would say to the point of having any serious aspirations uh, beyond, you know, normal childhood. Woohoo, I love the thing that goes choo-choo. <laughs> I would probably submit something to do with artistry. I drew a lot as a kid. But as soon as I got into programming in middle school, that kind of went away. I always need something for a reference. I never got past the point of, like, knowing how to draw stuff without a reference. I got really good at drawing stuff with a reference, but not much beyond that. So I'm kind of glad. I don't really think I had the artistic chops in me to go that direction although they have helped me a lot in my design you know I was into photoshop really early just because of that kind of stuff and so I do think that helped my career I do think that I would be surprised even my teenage years would be surprised by where I am now because I wasn't very aware of the concept of an independent programmer you know, back then, the idea of programming was all, hey, you're working at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. uh, you're living in a cubicle. There's not much creative direction or aspiration to any of it. Sorry, programmers back then who did have creativity in them. I'm not trying to put that down. But, you know, the general populace, yeah. it was much more of a, I think, a hard engineering look 
on programming. So the idea of not only making an independent living on it, but being able to do all the things that like Alice as a product manager, you might do like those creative problem solving. That's not just engineering. Yeah. I think that that would definitely have surprised you on me. I wanted to be a movie director when I was a kid. I loved I loved the concept of making movies and I actually loved a lot of like doing media stuff in general. I didn't have a video record, like a video camera or anything like that when I was a kid. So instead I used to basically write and record audio plays, like, you know, radio shows or whatever, like fictional radio stuff. And I I didn't have a microphone either. So I would record them into a speaker that I had reverse engineered (laughs) into a microphone. Mm Mm-hmm. And that that carried on right through until I left home and I went to, that's what I went to study to do. And the fact that I basically took a hard left turn and ended up doing programming and stuff as my main gig would be incredibly surprising to even teenage me, honestly, because it just, it did not even occur to me that that was going to be the way that things would go. That was sort of like a, oh yeah, that's something that I do just in my spare time. But that was never my that was never my goal until suddenly it became it became my everything. <laughs> so our next question comes from Christina Lau. Hoping I'm getting that name right. Sorry if I didn't. Uh, don't trust me to pronounce anything right. See GIF versus GIF. <laughs> you basically just said that you were wrong. So let's just move on. <laughs> so the question is uh have you submitted your apps to the app store editorial via their new ish uh tell us your story page uh and did that work for you uh just uh, in case anyone isn't aware of this page uh apple launched it about a year ago and they encourage us developers to submit any upcoming major versions outline what's new and it's a great way for us to let editorial know what we're working on uh with 68 weeks notice ahead of time well that's an easy answer (laughs) because we've been working on (laughs) gus or super mario plus for so long that i didn't even know this existed so (laughs) that's a hard no I also haven't submitted to to it. I knew it existed and I knew about the email that this replaced. I never got around to actually ever submitting anything because the six to eight week lead time for this thing always catches me off guard because I'm usually ready to ship and I usually have something that I actually can like have as a shipping thing three days before release usually. Yeah. Just like but my my like the way that I typically approach this stuff is like, I'm just going to work until it's done. And then I want to get it the heck out the door. I don't want to have yeah. it behind. Like I don't want to have it closed off anymore. Even with gift wrapped two, which is re- launching very, very soon. I've had a really long lead time, but even then the, the, the product has only really been shippable for maybe a couple of weeks. And at this point, it's not a thing that I can expect anything to happen with that email. So I like, I should have done it like m- weeks ago, but yeah. That didn't happen, clearly, because I wasn't ready. I'm in a similar boat as you. Uh, six to eight week lead time is uh, a joke for me. I'm just shipping. And eight weeks is half my season, yeah, uh, almost. That's right. That doesn't help me too much. 
I have submitted a couple times, usually about with two week notice. I have heard from a friend or two that uh, they've done the same and they've gotten some uh, grumpy replies occasionally from Apple uh, pointing out that six to eight week lead time. But kind of going off the main question, but the the one takeaway I would instill is still do it. Even if Jelly, you know, you're like me and six, eight weeks is laughable. I would still do it because if nothing else, it's getting people on the editorial team to become aware of you. And they might not feature that version or they might kick you for not telling them soon enough. But at least hopefully then your app is on their radar in the future because they're always going through pools of apps to try and come up with new editorial content. Okay. Eat your veggies, <laughs> Jelly. I'll worry about this when we're even close to releasing it. <laughs> Our next question comes from an anonymous listener. I'm totally convinced that it's You're you. You're convinced it's me. And it's, what are your tips for getting the most out of DubDub? And I mean, it makes sense because I've never been and I'm technically I'm not going, going. I'm just going to be DubDub adjacent you, yeah. <laughs> with you guys. <laughs> well, this is the thing. Like getting the most out of, out of WWDC is not necessarily about getting the most out of the conference itself. If you are going to the conference itself, which, I, I mean, I think, Curtis, you've been to the actual conference maybe a couple of times. No. Never. Okay. No, I've never had a ticket. So I'm the only person who is actually qualified to answer this <laughs> this part of the question. The most that you're going to get out of the conference itself is going to be labs. Everything else is available online at a later stage. Like, you can watch the videos when they come out. They stream a lot of them now. The keynote and the State of the Union and the Apple Design Awards, uh, that's all available online. You can watch that anytime. The labs are something that are not available because that's literally you being able to go to talk to people that are working on the Apple side of the code that you're writing against and get help. So if you're going to the actual conference and you have a, have a golden ticket, then prepare yourself some questions. Try to get the code that you're having trouble with or that you're needing to like get, get help on. Try and separate that out in such a way that you can very easily show that to somebody so that you can get assistance because they'll sit down with you and, and sort of work through problems with you if you need them to. But yeah, make sure that you go into that prepared because I can guarantee you that if you arrive at a lab and just sort of try to wing it, it's not going to go well for you. It's just really yeah. not. <laughs> yeah, you'll have a bunch of angry uh, developers behind you uh, who are trying to also <laughs> ask those questions and you're wasting their time. Also, you'll annoy the people running the lab. Yes. And, and, and I know this because I've done this. I Because oh, the first yeah. time I went, I wasn't prepared for it at all. I just sort of figured I'd go into a lab and just ask a question and sort of like try to explain where I was going. And I didn't really have a plan. And it like they got really annoyed with me because I was wasting their time. Yeah, They couldn't really help me because I wasn't prepared for them to help me. So if you want to get the most out of the labs, well, if you want to get the most out of DubDub is go to the labs. And if you want to get the most out of the labs, be prepared. <laughs> be prepared. Good old Boy Scout motto. Mm -hmm. So if you're not uh, rich enough or having a company to pay for your golden ticket to go to the conference proper, uh, I would say definitely find a way to be where the people are. Um, don't hide in your hotel room the entire time. Go out, try and get out there. You know, find a place that everyone's eating lunch. Just try and casually run into people. Um, I do find San Jose to be much, much, much better than San Francisco was for running into people randomly. It's a much more condensed town. It's a lot less uh, busy with other people. So most of the people you're going to run into, there's a high chance they're there for WWDC. Um, hang around the conference areas like Altcom for something like that. Um, 
And also, I might go out of my way if there are specific people you want to try and run into. Maybe think about that ahead of time and maybe even reach out to them on Twitter and be like, hey, I'd love to, you know, run into you, have some tea or coffee or something. Um, and a lot of people will generally say yeah to that um, as long as they're not overwhelmed with those kind of requests. Obviously, be nice if uh, they politely say no uh, or if you end up in their Twitter DMs that they never check. Also, be polite with that. But uh, yeah, definitely go out of your way to just ask people to hang out because that's what everyone's there for. And it's not weird to get requests to be like, hey, can we get tea? A lot of people get those kind of requests. So just do it and uh, you'll get a lot more out of WWDC, I think. And side note to this, by the way, going to the conference itself is not a requirement to get the most out of being in San Jose. If you're there, you can get a lot out of being at DubDub that you wouldn't get otherwise. Oh, yeah. And it's not a requirement in any way to go to the conference. For starters, there's other conferences that are going on. Layers is really great. Alt Conference is great. There's a bunch of them that happen. There's so much going on that you don't have to go to actual WWDC in order to get the most out of WWDC. <laughs> Obviously, I haven't gone to Dub Dub, but I'm really looking forward. But you've heard it's yes. wonderful. <laughs> yes, so many wonderful things. But actually, the one thing I'm looking forward to most <laughs> is running your 5K thing that, what's it called? Dub Dub Dot Fitness. <laughs> so we're plugging Curtis's 5K here. Join us. I'll be trailing in the very end <laughs> in the 12 minute mile. And hopefully there's other stragglers with me as well. Oh, there are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, I think one morning we had like 40 or 50 people show up and it was everywhere from like seven minute miles to I think 14, 15 minute miles. Um, Perfect. But yeah. Every morning, 5K, 730, a good excuse not to stay out drinking too late because we need that at Dub Dub. There are too many parties sometimes. I'm going to say it's only going to be one of the three days. <laughs> well, you maybe. I'll be there every day because I'm a masochist. Well, because you run the thing. Not not, not both in the literal sense yeah, and in the magic sense. <laughs> <laughs> There's also uh, rock climbing on Tuesday and Thursday. That's but cool. www.fitness is the website. All right. Our next question also comes from Heidi Helen Polipus. In the lead up to WWDC... What are some features you'd love to have in iOS? So at least for me, one that immediately comes to mind, I would love regional pricing for consumable in-app purchases. Mm. Right now, Apple gave us the tools two years ago for pricing subscriptions at different tiers based on the country that it's sold in. Uh, so, for example, for my European markets, my season pass is priced a little bit lower because skiing in Europe is substantially cheaper than it is in the States. However, I cannot do that with my non-subscriptions, and I would love to be able to do that. Along the same vein, I really wish or I hope that they're going to start supporting like volume discounts for like educational apps, but for in-app purchases. Mm. So we can do it for our paid upfront app, um, but for things like our stories app if that's an in-app purchase we've yeah. we've had several schools be like why how can we purchase this it's we can't seem to do it through their system and i go i i just think there's no answer for that and i say something like can i offer you some free promo codes but they can't actually most schools i think cannot accept promo codes it has to be legit purchased mm. i would like them to do something with their buddy build uh, acquisition that they did a couple mm -hmm. of years ago I was using BuddyBuild at the time that they acquired it and they basically just kicked off a bunch of people that weren't like high paying subscribers or whatever. I went around the internet at the time trying to figure out like what I can use to replace it and literally none of the solutions had the same sort of 
appeal to somebody who is indie. It's all like either you're doing things on the side for kicks or you're doing something in a team of like 50 people and need like massive like features to be able to like manage that like amount of people using this thing. But there's nothing in between and that doesn't really work for somebody in my situation. I hope we're not getting our hopes up because I, I, I know the, or at least I've met the guy who used to run Buddy Bill, mm. Dennis. Um, and I noticed he's linked as on the Xcode team. So I'm like, okay, wouldn't Buddy Bill be a service, yeah, not Xcode? So I'm really hoping we don't get our hopes up. I, I feel like it's going to be, I feel like it will be part of the Xcode thing because I feel like they'll do something with Xcode bots. Ah, remember Xcode bots. That was cute. <laughs> I feel like they'll probably do something with Xcode bots and just basically have a way to run that stuff in the cloud. I really hope so. Honestly, that's all I really want. Like that's yeah. that would be great, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see if we get anything. It's the two-year mark since the acquisition. It feels like about the right time to get something. Yeah. There's been no rumors or anything about it, though. So that's... that's sort No, of... but also no dev tools have been rumored or leaked so far this year. It's only been feature stuff. So yeah. we'll see. In the, in the wake of all this, like, privacy stuff with Facebook and anything Facebook related, I just feel like anything privacy, like anything to, like, lock down more privacy on iOS would make me feel better about staying on iOS. Not that I'm really considering um, switching over, mm-hmm. but like if they just kept going in that direction, I think they're... So basically keep doing what, they keep, what they're already yeah, exactly. doing? Do it <laughs> more. Going. Do more yeah. of what you're doing. More of it, more of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kind of in that vein, Alice, where I don't know exactly what I want, but I am definitely very excited over the idea of the revamped multitasking and the multi-window support and all that kind of stuff for the iPad. My laptop had its keyboard issues, haha, you know, MacBook keyboard, let's make mm-hmm. jokes. It uh, went into the shop for like a day and a half to get its new keyboard. And I was on the iPad all day trying to do a lot of work. And I definitely was feeling the strain of iOS and its current multitasking. So I am definitely looking forward to as a consumer, not as a developer, a, a lot more in that realm of just power multi-window and stuff like that. Mm. And I'm curious how I might be able to adapt some stuff for slopes in that arena. I have some ideas maybe, but the whole idea of the panel kit and all the other kind of stuff definitely has me excited and it's stuff I've wanted to see for a while in iOS. So the feature that I would like in iOS is is very, very specific. It's so specific. Clips, the app that Apple released for like creating little square videos of stuff and applying filters, basically Instagram-ish stuff for mm-hmm. video. Clips has a special share sheet that allows you to share with people via iMessage instead of using AirDrop. And they all show up as contacts up the top with little like a little oh, messages yeah. bubble. And at the time that this came out, I was like, oh my God, I want this in GIF wrapped. I just want it. It's just, I need it. It's the thing. It makes more sense than airdropping GIFs to people. It yeah. doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, so this is, this is a feature I would like, both from a developer standpoint and from a user standpoint. So our next question is from Alexander Markle. And this is, do you use any growth hacking in your apps? How do you balance designing for growth versus not being too spammy? There's not a whole lot of growth hacking. It's, you know, I think specifically because it is a kid's app. It's really just the content that we want the kids to focus on. We do have like a newsletter sign up behind like a parent wall that we use and I don't know if that's growth hacking it's just sign up for a newsletter we used to have social media buttons and that went away again because we're like you know it's for kids mm. they're not sharing anything yeah 
I don't know that I use a lot of growth hacking. I definitely do things to try and like increase the amount of sharing that people do and the sort of visibility of gift wrap. One of the features that I have when I generate gifts from like live photos and burst photos and stuff, I apply a, a, a gift wrap logo to those so that you know that like that's where they created it and stuff and you can remove it with purchasing the premium subscription if you want. I do little stuff like that to try and sort of just make people more aware of gift wrapped. I don't necessarily know that that's growth hacking in any particular way. Mostly I stay away from stuff that I just feel really sort of dirty about. Because if I get a real dirty feeling, I'm not going to enjoy doing it. And I don't feel like it's something that uh, people will enjoy either. Sometimes that feeling can take me too far in the wrong direction. Like I, I you know, tend to not share as much as I probably should on things like Twitter and like do stuff like that. But again, that's not growth hacking. I just stay away from stuff. I just try to not grow at all. You stay away from growth. <laughs> yeah. Who that's wants the to easiest grow? way. Jelly, we need a show topic on uh, your approach to being indie. <laughs> <laughs> How to plateau like a pro. <laughs> How to not do anything right. <laughs> yeah, so Slope's growth hacking, I hate that term, started out with the concept of like just make it easy for people to share. Kind of like you, Jelly, like I just wanted to make sure like if people want to get something out there, make it easy. And where it's appropriate, put a little made with Slope's uh, tag in the image or something yeah. like, like that. And actually... The first time I did it, the image and everything was way too small. And I had I saw people on social media asking, hey, what app is that? It's like they're in the top right corner, just too small. You just can't read it. Pro tip, uh, you probably made your logo and your text smaller than it should be. Just up it a little bit beyond your comfort level. And that's probably the right spot. So after that, um, I've had kind of a tricky balance, especially as I'm starting to design some social stuff, friending people in app and stuff like that within slopes with some lightweight leaderboards amongst friends. Where I'm actually doing the opposite of growth hacking. (laughs) And instead of doing what a lot of other apps will do, like connect via social media to find your friends or upload your contact list or type in their email or their username. Like I'm not letting any of that. I'm making users send a link to each other to friend each other or be next to each other and use Bluetooth to discover each other. So I'm kind of in the jelly boat there of hampering growth. I'm doing that for reasons I don't know if we'll ever talk about on the show, but it certainly helps with a privacy standpoint and getting rid of a bunch of trolls and having to worry about blocking and all that kind of stuff. But then on the flip side there, I'm also looking into things like, you know, when you buy a season pass, um, maybe I give you a free day pass or two, which are transferable to your friends. And that's a classic growth hacking technique. And that doesn't feel too spammy because... A, ski resorts do that. When you buy a season pass, you get a couple day passes or discounts on day passes for friends. But B, I'm actively giving my users value. And maybe that's the best way to frame how I look at not being too spammy and to actually quantify that dirty feeling that you're talking about, Jelly, is I want to make sure that I'm bringing value to my users or my friends. Yeah. And not through the lens of some way that some BS VC might be able to convince themselves that they're bringing value, but how an actual person would think that you might be bringing value to someone. That's generally the lens that I look through. And at that point, I'll try and go with it. I don't focus too much on the growth hacking stuff yet, but I try and pick off some of that where I can, because it would be silly to ignore. Then you end up like jelly. (laughs) Hang on. Hang on. I, it's, it's not like so I do nothing. So next question comes from... Jelly might have the most downloads of all of us. <laughs> the app growth, growth hacks itself. <laughs> yeah, it, they're all gifts. They growth hack themselves. And that's the thing. I don't like the term growth hacking because hacking makes it sound like you're doing something wrong in order to get growth. 
And I refuse to do something like that. That's not something that I want to do in any particular way. Yeah. Because if I'm doing the wrong thing in order to get a benefit for me, then I'm not really bringing any benefit at all. I will focus my efforts on trying to, bring, like you said, Curtis, bring more value to the people that are using my app. Because if the people that use my app get value, guess what they're going to do for me? They're going to share the thing yep. and then my, I'm going to grow because that's how that stuff works. Well, as long as you have an avenue where that sharing and that growth somehow links back to your app, yes. that is an important thing and you're covering that with your app how you're water tagging when you bring in from live photo or from burst mm -hmm. because you could argue just bringing value to your users is just allowing that conversion and posting it but then you would get absolutely no growth from there yeah so it is perfectly fair you to go in and add a watermark for gift wrap and that's i think the right balance that i would take too yeah and i do that in a number of areas so it's not like i do nothing I definitely do that stuff and I definitely see benefits coming from doing that stuff. And I get, definitely get benefits just from providing that value to people in the first place. Uh, I've mentioned multiple times on the show that people posting about how to save gifts from Twitter, that is the number one way that people find gift wrapped and download it. I and love so that. That's, that's amazing. <laughs> and it's got nothing to do with me doing any sort of hacking in order to enable that growth. In fact, if anything, it probably benefits me inversely. Like I, I get less benefit out of it because I don't like that. Like it's not even a paid feature. It's just a feature and like, but people still download it. And once they get into the app, I, my, my hope is that they will discover that the app can do so much more than what they yeah. initially downloaded it for. And that's where that, like, I, I just, I get, I, I get so many downloads from that. It's, it's ridiculous how many downloads I get from that. Our next question is again from Christina Lau. Why do you think there are so many running fitness yoga apps, but so few covering other popular sports, such as tennis and racket sports. Well, as the resident expert on the sports category, yeah. <laughs> let me go ahead with that one. No, I don't think it's actually anything specific to the sports category, joking aside. Um, I do think it has a lot to do with niches and markets. And, you know, running and fitness, which is kind of a big umbrella term, so I'm going to ignore that one for a second, but running and maybe bicycling and yoga um, those are very large niches that are available to a lot of people and have a lot of visibility. Mm. Um, so I think that's why there are so many apps there. And I think that's why they were certainly some of the first fitness apps to hit the iPhone. Running apps hit there, you know, day one, as soon as it had GPS in the iPhone. So that certainly makes sense that those markets would have been around longer and they're larger niches. And I think at least specifically citing things like tennis and racket, how much can you do with your iPhone? Maybe the watch you can do more with tennis and racket. There's a really great watch app for like rock climbing now where it can actually measure your ascent and descent and figure out when you're at the top. And that kind of stuff isn't stuff that you could really do as cool with the iPhone. So it might just be lack of technology or lack of wearable up until this point made those niches not quite as accessible um, as something like golf. You know, you don't necessarily need your phone to track or a watch to track your score. So I really think it has to do with like the niche size and how well the hardware could bring value to people in those niches. And a lot of the early ones, all they needed were GPS and they could bring a lot of value. But I think a lot of the other sports that might be out there and not as service as much 
need more than GPS. And that's where we're starting to get into some more of those with things like wearables. I also think it has to do with how accessible the sport is. I was just thinking that. I don't have a sports app, so maybe I'm not really uh, qualified for this answer. Other than the fact that like this is sort of the same thing that you would see in other categories that are not sports. Music, for example. There's so many apps out there to do things like a metronome or a guitar tuner, but you're not going to find like something that tunes your tuba. I don't, I don't even know what you would do with that stuff. But I think like it comes down to accessibility in a lot of ways. Running and workouts and yoga and stuff. That's a lot of like a lot of people get into that because like you only need like shoes or a mat or you know in the case of workouts you literally need nothing except for the app. But things like tennis require like going to a place and doing a thing and doing a thing yeah well you, you know you you flail around with the racket thing uh and like snowboarding you have to have the board and the equipment and then go onto a mountain and like <laughs> go up a lift there's got to be you have to have snow well unless you do the grass boarding thing I, I don't know there are sports that have different levels of accessibility for people not in, in the term of can people who are blind snowboard like yeah. was mentioned in a recent episode which they can which they can but it costs money to get into snowboarding. And I know, for example, here in Australia, snowboarding is really expensive in comparison to other parts of the world. And it's mm-hmm. not a thing that a lot of people are necessarily into. And so you're not going to necessarily see a lot of people that are also building apps for it because one leads to the other. And I think that's part of the reason that, like, for instance, there are so many versions of seven minute workout, like so many (laughs) versions of that on the app store, branded, not branded, indie, huge companies doing them. And it just has to do with like how accessible that is in so many ways. Well, and accessible versus what's, I think, the potential revenue there. Because like snowboarding, people used to spending a lot of money on their existing hardware. So charging for an app isn't as hard. If you're going like golfing, that's very much, I think, still a rich white person sport in America. And that's why it's kind of dying. Uh, They're not really attracting the young millennials who we don't have money. We only have avocado toast. There can still be apps in those niches because that niche could support a product in and of itself. But, you know, so sometimes that's just not the case for some other niches. You know, maybe it's, there's just not that much money in it. So nobody's really bothered unless it's their hobby dream project. Yeah. In which case they might throw an app out there. You mean like Slopes? Yeah, like Slopes <laughs> started as. You know, that was just me putting something out there. And then eventually I realized the niche was, in fact, good enough for me to grow a product there. And that's the thing. Like so many of these not ac- not necessarily accessible sports or sub-genres of categories they have a large amount of opportunity in there because there's nothing yes. necessarily to compete with. Like there might be one or two apps and like w- or whatever, but that, that that's far less than say trying to become the running. next to do thing or running yeah. or like running app or flipping seven minute workout thing. Like there's going to be a lot more opportunity to be the big player in that space. And the good thing is that might be a niche that is too small for someone like Nike to go after, for example. Yeah. But me, I'm looking at hiring an employee to do an Android app and stuff like that. Like it's enough to sustain a small team. So just because a lot of other larger businesses have ignored a niche like that doesn't necessarily mean you can't do something there. It's just that it might only grow to be a certain size for a small team. And that's why a lot of people are writing it off. So our next question comes from Edward Barbier. I'd love to hear your thoughts on sponsoring as a monetization strategy for niche apps. And specifically, Curtis, have you been approached by potential sponsors for Slopes? No, I have not. Good. (laughs) Next question. Fantastic. (laughs) 
So what exactly does sponsoring mean? Does that just mean like branded or like a big ad? So I'm thinking this is probably similar to YouTube sponsoring where a video might go up and a specific brand is sponsoring that video and therefore they need to do an ad read at the end. Um, or it's a paid review for a product or something like that. Somehow a company is funding your app and you are advertising for them within the app. So I'm no YouTube expert or even podcast expert, as you might think otherwise. Or just expert in general. <laughs> yeah, not an expert in anything. So at least within the podcast space, like you can't get sponsors unless you have a certain number of listeners. Like it's just not worth their time. And the same could be said on YouTube. You know, you're not going to see somebody with... 3,000 followers on YouTube get these big sponsors like Casper or Harry or something. So you need some kind of critical mass of people watching your videos and your new videos or even going back and watching the old videos so they can get repeat value out of that. And I think sponsors for apps in that way are going to be very hard to do, A, to like get their attention because at least like during YouTube or a podcast, like if we did an ad read, like you're listening to that ad, you might hit skip, but like that's it. It's not like this little corner of the interface. Like I feel like ultimately what sponsoring on an app would be would just be running ads. Yeah, that was literally going to be my answer. <laughs> at, at most, you might be able to do what like Marco on Overcast does where he doesn't use an ad network. He sells the ads directly. Um, so it's not really sponsored by the app. But it's as close to sponsorship as I think you could get with an app where you have multiple people bidding for those slots in the app. uh, And he sells the ads based on the podcast you're listening to, what market that's in, tech versus science versus whatever. Um, And he sells a limited number of ad slots on a monthly basis. So I could see something like that working. But also keep in mind, Overcast is a podcast app. I don't know his numbers, but the app's huge. It has a lot of people using it. Hmm on a daily basis and that makes it worth it to those people that are going to sponsor his app so i guess summing all that rambling up you would need a huge critical mass and i really think you would have a hard time with just one sponsor getting enough money from them for it to be worth it and that's why you need something like a multiple sponsor approach which at that point is basically ads and you could roll your own uh or you could use an existing ad network yeah we've had another kids app company ask us to do ads and it's just paid for per download so it's not a sponsorship but it's just again ads but i mean it's directly towards like they reached out directly it was not a network sort of similar (laughs) like i said my answer basically is the ads thing because honestly i don't know how you would i don't know how feasible it would be to in any way to do an an app that's sponsored in the same way that a, a a youtube video is or or the like, or a podcast, or whatever. I mean, YouTube videos and podcasts, the reason that sponsors even became a thing is because it's effectively based off the old TV stuff of having ad breaks, which are just ads directly inserted into, like, the show that you're watching. And radio shows had this too, obviously. They had ads that ran between segments and between songs and stuff like that. They still do. Sponsoring is basically just it's a natural fit. It's just a natural yeah. fit. And it's just with sponsors, it just means that one person is sponsoring the particular piece of content that you're you're showing, or maybe a couple. Usually usually somewhere between one and say three. Whereas, you know, TV shows they might show three ads or more in, in one ad break, and there might be two ad breaks throughout the show, depending on how long it was. I feel like taking the YouTube thing to, to apps is sort of 
putting yourself on a back foot. If what you're wanting is to basically give your app away for free in return for like promoting somebody else, then ads are the way to go or potentially offering your app as a white labeling thing. Although that is something that I don't know that I would personally go down because you're hooking your wagon up to somebody else's horse and now you're reliant on them for everything that you do in that app. So it, it that sort of thing would come with a lot of strings if it even is technically feasible, which I don't think it is. So my opinion is that it's probably bad, probably not good for your overall uh, your overall plan. Sorry, Edward. Sorry. <laughs> so we're going to end the show with a very, very deep philosophical question. Uh-oh. This one comes from Russ Shanahan. What is one important life lesson that you learned through your indie journey? Particularly, what lesson do you feel really sank in because you learned it the hard way in your own business efforts? Oh, boy. I think I need a couch. (laughs) Do we need to take a moment while you lie down on the floor? No. no. (laughs) I would say that in these eight to nine years already, I've learned to just do the indie life for myself. I think in the very beginning, especially like, you know, when the app store first came out and everyone was making money from making the crappiest app, you're like, I could do that too. And so my first thought going into it was just, let's build an empire and just build a whole lot of stuff and make a lot of money. And and then we didn't. <laughs> but I found so much joy out of it. I found joy. I found purpose. <laughs> I found a career. So for me, this is like a huge long journey. um, And the life lesson really is just the money is just not the goal. I wouldn't I would never say money is ever my goal, honestly. And being an indie like has so many other benefits that I don't know. I love it. Money isn't one of them. Yeah, (laughs) because it ain't coming. (laughs) Look, I think the thing that I have learned through being indie is that there isn't anybody else And it's not that like you're the only indie in the world, which let's be honest, you're not going to be the only indie. But when it comes to doing anything, there isn't anybody else for like your product. You are where the buck stops as far as any of the decisions that are made, like any of the questions that get asked, like they're going to be asked directly to you. And that can be hard and it can be good and it can be both and it can be both at the same exact time. But I think the thing that I've learned overall is that it's just, it it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what your answer is. Like you need to answer the way that you would answer and you need to answer the way that you know is right for you because nobody else can answer the questions about your business. It just can't be done because the things that you would do, the, the choices that you would make in these, in those situations in like questions like Curtis's question of the week of like, you know, what do I do with my business? How do I, how do I do this? And it's like, well, we, we can't, nobody can answer those questions except for Curtis. Is this your way of telling me to shut up going No, forward? it's not. I'm just using <laughs> you as an example. <laughs> nobody can answer those questions about gift wrapped or anything either. Like the most obvious example that I can, I can think of is Curtis's question of, should I do an Android version of Slopes? Which obviously I get the same question, but it's, you know, I get that same question emailed to me. Like, will you do Android? But clearly it's a thing that Curtis is considering doing. And nobody can answer that because nobody, like nobody outside of uh, of Curtis knows, for starters, what Curtis wants to do with his company. That's not something that anybody else can answer, but it's also, it's very personal to him. And it's something that he needs to be able to figure out what is best for him and what is best for his app. And 
you can hire somebody to do that for you, but again, they're going to answer the question in different ways to you. So the thing that I have learned is that it doesn't really matter. You've got to make the choice. I, I just have to make a choice and like and see where it goes. So uh, for me, life lesson, obviously Russ is trying to point us in the hard lesson learned direction here. I think it goes back to the podcast episode of You Are Not Your Product. That was a particularly, I think, important lesson for me to learn, but it's still hard in many ways and still something I'm struggling with. When I was working a job job, I certainly took pride in my work and I certainly felt some of that association of my self-worth to my output thing. But I think it was a lot easier to distance myself because kind of like what you're saying, Jelly, like when we're indie, this is all us and all the screw ups and all the successes, it's all on us and only we can decide this stuff. When I was inside of a corporation, there were many other things that could be blamed for success or failure. So it didn't necessarily reflect directly on me. So I think that's been kind of the hard light that's been shined on an aspect of my personality, my psyche, that my self-worth can sometimes be strongly tied to my product itself. And that's something that I've been working to disassociate you know, over the last year or two. And it's a struggle uh, and it's a lot of work. But I'm kind of glad it's been part of my indie journey because it's highlighting an aspect of me that I didn't really realize was there. And it's giving me an opportunity to now improve this aspect of me to have a healthier life, which is good. And I don't think I would have really ever realized just how tight it was if I were still having a job job. So yeah, go go listen to the episode of You're Not Your Product and I'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that one at length. Well, that's it. That's all the questions that we have uh, that we have for this episode. I It's probably going to be, I feel like it's going to be a struggle to get this down under the uh, under the 40 minute mark. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, you should probably stop talking and adding more time to it. <laughs> it's, it's probably a good, good, uh, good, good strategy. If you would like to send us an email or get in contact with us or send us a question for next year's uh, next year's birthday episode, then you can do that. Uh, you can jump onto our website, independence.fm, or you can send us an email at hello at independence.fm and all the stuff, all the stuff. But you can also contact us individually if you want to get a little bit more detail on some of the, one of the answers that one of us has given. Uh, we're all on Twitter most of the time. I am Jelly Bean Soup. I'm Eat a Duck, I Must. And I am Parrots, the plural of the bird. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being with us for two years of independence. What a, what a milestone. <laughs> it's been great to have you. It's been great to be able to talk to you. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>